You know, as we kind of settle in, I think we need to just begin in a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your word is truth, God, and you place some hard things in your word, things which touch a heart, which touch kind of strongholds, holdbacks in our heart, dark places even, God, and your purpose is to change us, to grow us, to make us into the likeness of your son. And so as we open up this text this morning, it deals with some difficult things. God, I pray that you would give us grace to understand, that you would speak to us and help us apply, and more importantly, to live these things out in our lives, God, that we might bring glory to you. And so we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of First John, where we're continuing our series this morning. It's titled Absolute Certainty. It's a study of the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And as you're turning there, we say all the time that God is a God of love. And it's true. It's not only what he does, but it's who he is. It's the very essence of God. God is love. But, well, and, you'll find us throughout the book of 1 John. Uh, there's dozens of references to love within 1 John. Some have actually called it the book of love because it's one of the central themes. But if I said that there's a type of love that God hates, what comes to your mind first? Type of love that God hates. I'm going to guess that for some, maybe even many, you think of, homosexual love and certainly that is something that does not please God that he hates that but what if I said it's something else it's a love that God hates and almost well every single one of us in this room participates in it what would that be yeah sort of worldliness worldliness and in our text this morning, this is what God, through the writing of John, is going to address. We're going to be diving into this topic. And so the message title this morning is Absolute Certainty of Worldly Things. Now, I've changed the title from what I had in place in the bulletin. I'm sorry. But as I got into it, I just thought worldly captured the text a little better than vain things. So absolute certainty of worldly things. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And the outline, three simple parts. What in the world? That's the first one. What in the world? <laughs> Verse 15. Secondly, why in the world? In verse 16. And finally, how in the world? In verse 17. So, we're going to be diving into the world here. And we'll just read through this three-verse passage first. And keep in mind that what we're reading is the Word of God. It's absolute truth. So, here we go. Beginning in verse 15 of chapter 2. Do not love the world... Or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. 
This is God's word. And so our first section again this morning is going to be, what in the world? Over 35 times in this short letter, John talks about love. He speaks of God's love, the love of the Father, love for our brothers, love for one another, and on and on and on. And as I said, the book itself has been referred to as the book of love. But as you get into our passage, starting in verse 15, it says something a little startling. It says, do not love. Do not love. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Think about that for a moment. Does that sound kind of startling, especially given the fact that John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son? How do we reconcile those two things? If God loves the world and we're to be godly, shouldn't we love the world too? Well, you might think, well, it's probably two different words in the original Greek language for world. And often that's the case, but not here. It's the exact same word in 1 John 2.15 and in John 3.16. It's the same word. So what's going on here? Well, this time we're dealing with another one of those homonyms. Homonyms are words that are spelled the same and, and pronounced the same, but they have different meanings. And this is a homonym in both the Greek language and the English language. So one word that has multiple meanings. And a word we're talking about is the Greek word cosmos. It sounds a lot like cosmos. That's where we get the word cosmos or cosmology. Not cosmetology, but cosmology. And so it's used 133 times in the New Testament, if I counted right. It's a popular word. And the thing is, cosmos has three different meanings in Scripture. It can mean, first of all, the world is in the planet, the environment, the created realm. Acts 17.24 says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. That's one meaning of the world. Well, secondly, it can also mean the people in the world. And this is what we see in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God didn't love or die for the planet and the environment. I think there's probably some in the earth summit that might wish he had, but he didn't. He didn't die for the environment. He created the environment, but he died for the people in the world. God so loved the people, the world. So, the thing is though, God's not telling us don't love the planet or don't love the people in the planet. There's something else. There's a third use of the word world and it's by far the most common and that is the worldly system. It's used six times in these three verses. Cosmos, it literally means an orderly arrangement or a system. So what is this worldly system? Well, if you were to take all the verses in the Bible that talk about the world, the worldly system, and put them together, you'd come up with a pretty good definition. And so I thought we should go to some of those verses. But I'm going to give you the definition first, and then we'll, we'll look at some of those verses. This is my definition for the world. The world is an organized system headed by Satan designed to keep God out. Say it again, an organized system headed by Satan designed to keep God out. 
Now let's look at where that comes from. First of all, it's an organized system. Listen to Ephesians 6 verse 12. It says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world. Notice that's not a haphazard arrangement. There's a whole organized structure to it. It has rulers and authority. It has a hierarchical arrangement to it. You could say it's like a governmental system. I'm starting to wonder if it's based in Washington. It certainly influences offices in Washington. 1 John 4, 5 says that they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. This worldly system has a viewpoint that's common. It's shared amongst the members of the world. And Romans 12, 2 says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world. So it's got a viewpoint, it's got a pattern. Those associated with the world share this viewpoint and fall into this pattern. And so they think and act alike in many, in many regards. So much so that, again, it's identifiable. It's an identifiable pattern. So it's an organized system. And now look at who leads it. John 12, 31 says, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. That's speaking of Satan. The prince of this world now stands condemned, John 16 says. And then if we go into the, the letter that we're studying, 1 John 5, 19 says, For we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Satan is the head of this world. He's spearheading this organization. It's an organized system headed by Satan. But what's the goal? I said it's to keep God out. John 15 verses 18 and 19 say, this is the words of Jesus, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, for I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. James 4, verse 4. Do you not know that friendship is the, with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That's because the world is diametrically opposed to God. The world is opposed to everything God stands for and the world stands for everything that God is opposed to. They're diametrically opposed. So when you put all these things together, you get a good sense of what the world is. And there are dozens of other passages we could pull up. But again, my simple definition, an organized system headed by Satan designed to keep God out. That'll be our working definition. So... When you look out at the things going on in the world around us, like Dan mentioned in the welcome, do you realize that there's a system and a purpose to it and that there's a power behind it? It influences the culture, the media, the school boards, the government, the religions of this world. We don't want to be naive and just suppose that this is just a group of people who don't share our viewpoint or our perspective. No, it's a system. It's headed by Satan. 
It's powerful and it permeates the people and the organizations around us. It's not primarily to people, but it is a spiritual system that influences the people. That's a world and the world hates Jesus Christ. And so God says, do not love the world. Do not love it or anything in it. Well, when you hear anything in it, what do you think of there? Cars, planes, sports, vacations, careers. But that's not what it's talking about. This is actually not talking about physical or material things. Rather, it's referring to the desires, the pursuits, the values, the philosophies of the world. Non-material things. Skip ahead and look at verse 16. For everything in the world, cars, boats, planes, yachts. No, that's not what it says, is it? For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. It's speaking of attitudes and desires of the heart. That's what it's speaking of. Not physical things. It's speaking of cravings and lusts and pride. These are the things in the world. And look down at verse 17. The world and its desires will pass away. So when it says, or anything in the world, in verse 15, it's not referring to material things, but to desires, pursuits, values, philosophies, and so on. All of these things in the world are attempts to find purpose and fulfillment apart from God. The whole purpose of this godly system, or this, of, this, of this worldly system, is to keep God out. The world wants you to believe that you pursue these things, you'll be happy, you'll be fulfilled. You'll find purpose and meaning in life, and you don't need God to do it. It's very deceptive. Well, now look at the second half of verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It doesn't say the Father doesn't love him. I think just the flip side of that, he is not loving the Father. The love of the Father is not in him. In other words, a person can't love both the world and love the Father. It's one or the other. Jesus made this real clear, right? He said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and the world or here he says, and money. Now, that doesn't, it doesn't say that you can't have money and love God. That's not true. It says you can't love money and love God. Money is not the root of all evil. That's a misquote. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. See, that's a hard attitude. It's not the money. It's the love of money. What is the love of money? Well, it's an insatiable desire to possess money that reorders one's priorities and preempts the love of God. That's my definition of the love of money. An insatiable desire to pursue money. So much so that it changes our whole priorities. It preempts the love and obedience to God. We're so hungry. We're craving this money. 
or anything else of the world. So it's impossible to love and serve the world and its desires, values, philosophies, and at the same time, love the Father. Because they're diametrically opposed to each other. James speaks of this, and he doesn't mince words. He says in James 4.4, you adulterous people. <laughs> he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Again, it's not the planet. It's not the people in the world. It's a worldly system. It's a system of corrupted values that's opposed to God. You know, I find that in my own life, whenever I begin to set my heart on the things of the world and pursue them as a first priority, my love for God, my desire to do his will begins to wane. It doesn't seem as important. It doesn't seem as real because my passions are set on something worldly. Have you experienced that in your own life? When our love for the things of the world goes up, our love and obedience to God goes down. They're not compatible. They're mutually exclusive. It's impossible to love them both. So what in the world are we talking about? We're talking about an organized system that's headed by Satan and it's designed to keep God out. That's the world. Why in the world? Why shouldn't we love these things? Well, that's what's addressed in verse 16. It says, for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. All the longings of the world can be summed up in these three things. The cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does. All of the longings are summed up in those. ESV translates it, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions. Or kind of a translation that, that I've heard and kind of memorized over many years, the New King James Version. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That sums up the longings of the world. And notice again, this is talking about heart attitudes and desires, not material things. And these are the tools that God uses to draw us in to worldliness. Let's look at them. First, the cravings of sinful man are what the ESV calls the desires of the flesh. This is a preoccupation with satisfying physical desires. Physical desires that takes us outside the will of God or outside the word of God. Dan said last week, we are pleasure-seeking people. And he's right. We are pleasure-seeking people. That's a desire we have. And the desires we have are not wrong necessarily. God created them. But I've said often that what's God-given must also be God-governed. If we become preoccupied with these desires or allow them to take us outside the word and the will of God, then they become sinful. They become sinful cravings and worldly. Take sexual desire. You know what? God created it. Praise God. Amen? Okay. God created it for procreation. He created it for pleasure for us. And ultimately, he created it to bring him glory. 
That was his purpose. The world, however, wants to use these God-given desires and draw us into ungodliness. They take these good things and the world twists it into something so perverse. Nowhere is that more apparent, I believe, than the area of sexuality. God's original intent has been so corrupted and perverted. It's become the epitome of the cravings of sinful men. But it's not just sexual desire. It's far more than that. Any of our human desires can become a sinful craving. Whether that's the desire for food, power, health, acceptance, success, recognition, vengeance, on and on. When these desires take us outside the will of God, they become sinful cravings. And again, it's not the physical things that this is talking about, but the craving of them, the longing for them. Here's an important question. I didn't get it in the PowerPoint, but what do you love or desire so much that you're willing to sin to get it? Think about that. What do you love, crave, desire so much that you're willing to sin to get it? That's the cravings of sinful mankind. When we desire them above obedience to God, they become idols in our lives. We begin to worship those things, and that's the definition of an idol. It's not a little statue, although it can be, but it's the things that preempt the first love of God. Um, Timothy Keller said it really well. He said this, he said, the human heart is an idol factory that takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them, make them gods, as the center of our lives, because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. But if we go after those things outside the will of God, it's not gonna bring us any of that. It's a sinful craving. It's destructive. I think, I think uh, Keller's quote really says it well. So the cravings of sinful men. Next on the list is the lust of the eyes. Our eyes can have an appetite too. If you think about it, you're just saying, feast your eyes on this. Or we talk about like binge watching of movies or TV shows. Proverbs says the eyes are never satisfied. They're always hungry for more. And the eyes are like the gateway to the mind. So oftentimes, if not almost always, we see something first and that triggers the thought. Our eyes see it and our heart longs and lusts for it. It craves it. And so, that's the lust of the eyes. Never satisfied. I was, a while back I was in Costco. And there was a lady with the child in the basket that she was pushing along. And as this child went down the row, again and again, he said, ooh, I want that. <laughs> and then she'd go like about six feet further. Ooh, I want that. And again, I mean, he must have said it like 10 times. Ooh, I want that. Isn't that the lust of the eyes? It starts really early, doesn't it? What are some of the things that we can see and be tempted to lust after? And we're not just talking about sexual things or even just material things. But what about some of the immaterial things like success, popularity, fame? 
Our eyes can see these things and our sinful hearts can so easily crave them. Yet if we choose to satisfy those cravings through sinful means, the satisfaction doesn't last and the craving doesn't go away. It doesn't. The satisfaction is what goes away and the craving only intensifies. See, that's the trap of temptation. Just go over it and you'll be satisfied. The craving will be gone. No, it won't. It'll take more and more to satisfy you. The craving intensifies. Here's one that gets me. <laughs> Look at this. I came across this picture a couple weeks ago. Look at this family. Attractive family. They're enjoying each other. They're well-to-do. They're well-dressed. It looks like they're going to have some leisurely time. And ooh, they have a private jet. Ooh, I want that. <laughs> That's what my heart's saying right now. Ooh, I want that. I do. Here's the thing though. Satan wants to use that appeal to my flesh and draw me away from God's will and God's priority for my life. In 2 Timothy 4.10, we read that the disciple Demas abandoned Paul and he abandoned the ministry, it says, because he loved the world. He went back to Thessalonica. He left the ministry because the world just had too much attraction for him. And this, this often begins with the lust of the eyes. There's one more. And that's the boasting of what he has and does. Or in other translations, the pride of possessions or the pride of life. It's the desire to impress people with what we have or what we've obtained, accomplished. It can be all of the letters after our name that represent our degrees. It can be the material things that we have. In fact, we'll sacrifice our integrity and honesty. We'll lie to make ourselves look better in front of other people. The boasting of what one has and does, it strokes our pride and our ego. The story is told about a clever salesman who closed hundreds of sales deals with this simple line. Let me show you something several of your neighbors said that you couldn't afford. Oh, I want that. I want them to, I'm going to show them I can afford this. I got it. People go into great debt to impress those around them, to paint an image of ourselves that can be so hollow. Well, it's all about how it makes us look. And it can include boasting, even exaggerating about our accomplishments in our careers. And this too is the domain of the world. The Bible says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, not in ourselves. Anything we have or are able to do is enabled by God. Every good gift comes from God. So, these three things, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. These are the things of the world and they're the tools that Satan uses to lure us into sin and ungodliness. Now this is nothing new. He's been doing the same thing from the very beginning. Let me take you back into the garden. All the way back to the very beginning of mankind. In Genesis 3, the serpent said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then here we go in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some of it and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food. It would satisfy her desire, her appetite, her hunger. And it was pleasing to the eye. So we got right there. The, the cravings of sinful man, the desire to satisfy ourselves. And, and we've got the lust of the eyes. Whew, look how pretty that is. And she felt if she could have that, if she could possess that, well, her husband would admire her because she could have this wisdom. She could be like God. The boasting of what one has and does. And it worked. She took it and she ate and the world fell into sin. It didn't matter that it was forbidden because it was beautiful. It was satisfying. It, it pumped up her, her sense of self-worth, her appearance before others. So there you have these three avenues that the enemy uses. He used them then, he uses them now. He even used them against Jesus some 4,000 years later, he used these same three tools to tempt Jesus. In Matthew 4, Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and the tempter came to him and said, if you are son, the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. In other words, you can satisfy your desire, your appetite, your hunger. Just turn these into bread. And then the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He said, all this I'll give you if you will bow down and worship me. He appealed to the lust of the eyes. Jesus looked out and saw all of that. You can have this, Jesus. And then in verses 5 and 7, he takes him to the holy city and he has him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift you up in their hands that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He appealed to the pride of life by trying to get him to defy his heavenly father. The tools that the devil used on Adam and Eve and Jesus are the same tools that he uses on you and me. And they're summed up in verse 16. The cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes and the boasting of what he has and does. Why in the world shouldn't we love these things? They don't come from God. They don't represent the character of God. Now, the material things themselves might come from God, but the sinful craving for them, the lust of the eyes, that pride, that doesn't come from God. That comes from the world. So, this is why we shouldn't love them. Well, how in the world then? I want to look at that. How in the world are we to live as believers in the midst of such a broken 
and falling, a fallen world where the enemy is leading an organized campaign against us. How in the world are we going to live like this? Some say the answer is escapism or isolationism. We'll just flee the world. We'll get away from all of them out there. and We'll go live in our little cubbyhole. It was around 250 AD. There was a man named Anthony of Egypt. Some call him Saint Anthony. And he was so fed up with the evil in the world that he decided to go out in the desert all by himself and live in a cave and later in a grave, a tomb. And he did and he thought, well this way I can fulfill God's purpose for me and I can just worship him, devote my entire life to worship and prayer. Well, that was the beginning of the monastic movement. Manos means alone. And so we get the word monk and monastery from manos alone. Just go into a monastery. Block the world out. And then you can avoid all of this sinful influence. But here's the thing. Sanctification through isolation is not God's plan for his church at all. In fact, John 17, Jesus is praying right before he was betrayed. And, and this is what he prayed. He said, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world and put them in a monastery. But that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then he says this, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That was his formula for our sanctification, for our avoiding the temptations, the pitfalls, and for becoming godly. The truth, God's word is truth. We need the word of God if we're going to overcome the evil one. It's through the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit that God sets us apart and makes us holy. This is how Jesus warded off the devil's temptation. He applied the word of God again and again and again. He said, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Three temptations and three times he went to the truth of the word of God. You and I need the word of God if we're going to overcome the world, the worldly system, the temptations of the devil. Look back one verse from our text at 1 John 2 verse 14. It says, I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. See that? The word of God is in you. You've overcome the evil one. We need to immerse ourselves in the word of God. You might get tired of hearing this. And you might even just dismiss it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're God. There's got to be something else. No. You've got to immerse yourself in the word of God. And as we do, the spirit of God works in the heart of God's people to transform them into the image of God. The word of God is a principal tool that he uses. It's what Jesus ran to. It's what we need to go to as well. The Spirit's working through it. The Bible says the one who is in you, the Holy Spirit, is greater than the one who is in the world, the devil. You and I have the upper hand. But we have to remain in the truth, the word. And we have to draw upon the Spirit. We have to walk with the Spirit through his word. He will give us that power to say no to that temptation. If we don't, 
we're not in the word, if we don't have a hunger, if our, if our desire for it has grown stale, cold, then I'll bet you the things of the world are really drawing, pulling at us. Because when our love for God grows stale, the things of the world become more and more important and more valuable in our eyes. Well, look at the truth that's in verse 17. It says, the world and its desires will pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. That's the purpose we have to maintain when we're tempted with worldliness. The world and its desires will pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. On January 3rd, in 1986, the town of Leadville, Colorado held the grand opening for a great palace. It was the largest palace of its kind anywhere in the world. It had towers that were 90 feet tall. It enclosed 144,000 square feet of floor area. It had two grand ballrooms, a restaurant, exhibition halls. It had a 16,000 square foot skating rink. And they built this to create jobs and to draw tourists to Leadville, Colorado, where the mining industry was sagging. Well, the only problem is that the great palace of Leadville was made almost entirely of ice. It's known as the Leadville Ice Palace. Unseasonably warm weather had already postponed the Christmas Day opening. They didn't open it until January 3rd. Temperatures were soaring into the mid-60s, even though Leadville sits more than 10,000 feet above sea level in the Colorado mountains. By the middle of March, summer temperatures had set in. And the five-foot-thick walls of ice were melting away. And by March 28th, it had to be closed just three months after they opened it. All that remains today is a little plaque in a park nearby where the palace once stood. Now imagine if you had sunk everything you have into that palace. All your money, all your treasures, your heirlooms were all in that palace. And they're gone. Well... Verse 17 says that you and I are living in a world that will pass away just as surely as the Leadville Ice Palace. Do you believe that? It says the world and its desires will pass away and so will the objects of those desires. Remember the desires that are hard. It's the objects that we desire that will also pass away. The worst thing we could do is to invest in worldly treasures. They're worthless, they're vain, they're empty, they're pointless. Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But he didn't say don't store up treasures. He said don't store up treasures on earth. He said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. He said, these are better treasures. You can't lose them. He wasn't opposed to storing up treasure. He just wanted us to store it in the right place. The ancient Egyptians had a different approach. They packed the, the tombs with treasures because they believed that these treasures would magically appear with them in the afterlife. And so the richer and more prominent the person was in this life, the more treasure he'd have to accompany him in the afterlife. And that's what made these wealthy graves the, the target of many robbers. 
1922, after years and years of searching, the archaeologist Howard Carter discovered the tomb of King Tutankhamun. Remember? King Tut. And its treasures had mostly been untouched. Some of them had been stolen, but mostly untouched for 3,000 years. There were over 5,000 items in King Tut's tomb. Most of them were gold or gold-plated. The inner sarcophagus alone was made of 240 pounds of solid gold. And in total, the objects in the tomb at the time were valued at about $750 million. He had chariots, model boats, chairs, paintings, food, and wine. He had it all. He was going to be all set in the afterlife, right? Well, if you think about it, this is like an ancient version of a hearse pulling a U-Haul, right? We use that saying, you don't see a hearse pulling a U-Haul, but we act like it can. Like we can somehow, like this is going to stay with us. It's not. 1 Timothy 6, 7, for we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. The Egyptians had the right idea in trying to store up treasures, but they didn't know the truth. They abandoned the truth and they said, we're going to do this our way. We're going to pack the tomb with treasures. We're going to mummify the body so it'll be preserved for the next life. Well, afterlife, it's not about mummification. It's about resurrection, what God will do. So, verse 17, the world and its desires and the object of those desires will pass away, but the man who does the will of God will live forever. Now, this passage is not saying that it's wrong to have material possessions or even to enjoy them. If it is, well, then I'm just as guilty as the next person. Because I confess, when I go home at the end of a long day, I don't go home and just sit around and listen to Gregorian chants. <laughs> I don't, and just go in my prayer closet and spend the rest of the night in my prayer closet. I have hobbies. I have things I enjoy. There's things in life that I own and that I enjoy. So then how in the world can we enjoy the material things in this life without becoming worldly? That's our challenge. Here's a verse that I think is a key. I love this verse when I came across it. 1 Timothy 6.17. You might jot it down. I'll read it to you. It says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who, get this, richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Isn't that cool? God provides things that we can enjoy. So the question is, what are we hoping in? What are we turning to for the source of our comfort, our security, our strength, our pleasure? Is it the Lord or is it the riches of the world? And again, notice God richly provides us with everything we need. And he provides things for our enjoyment. But we have to seek God first and allow him to provide these things. It's been said, and I, I like this saying, if we seek happiness, we'll find emptiness. But if we seek holiness, we'll find both holiness and happiness. See, it's how you go about it. If our primary pursuit is the things of this world, if we give in to those, those sinful cravings and make that our God, our idol, our first priority, 
we're going to find emptiness. And there's a good chance at the end, it's all gone. And, and perhaps we didn't even have a relationship with the Lord. But if we pursue the Lord, holiness. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Number one priority. And all this other stuff will be given to you. Don't worry about that stuff. He says, seek me. I love you. I richly provide everything for your enjoyments. I'll give you what you need. In fact, I'll make you very satisfied. But you have to seek me first. So how closely do we hold to this truth of God's word? I suspect that, me included, we don't hold to it as closely as we might think we do. Here's a little test to see how closely we do hold to it. What is your standard of success? How do you define it? Is it worldly or is it godly? Is it a nice house, a healthy income, a good retirement account? Or is it faithful and effective ministry that advances the kingdom of God? How do you define success? How do you live that out? Question number two, what's your standard for what makes a person of the opposite sex appealing? Is it worldly or is it godly? Now this can be somebody you know in person or somebody you see on TV or in a movie. What makes that person appealing? Is it outward beauty or is it a heart for God? What consumes most of your discretionary time? Is it the pursuit of worldly things or of godly things? See, that's the test. How closely do we hold to this truth of God's word? How well do we live it out? I think we can agree that the things in this passage, we probably all have some things that we need to work on. So I wanna, I wanna wrap it up. There's so much more to unpack in this. There's so much more. Remember, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the powers, the principalities. It's a spiritual battle. We win that on our knees. We don't go out and punch someone in the face because they don't agree with our value system. We love them, but we try to speak to their heart. We bring them the gospel. We let the Lord change them from the inside out. There's just so much to unpack here. But that's the reason why we have Encore. Dan spoke about it this morning. We have Encore and on the back, Encore Kids. Object lessons that can help kids get their mind around the message. And in-depth, challenging, application-oriented questions that can help us process through what we heard and move it from just like head knowledge to heart knowledge to like working knowledge, applying it. So here's just a recap of some of the main points. I had to just trim this down, but... There is a love that God hates. He said, do not love the world or anything in the world. And what is this world? It's not the planet. It's not the environment. It's not the people in the world. The world is an organized system headed by Satan. And it has a real important mission in its mind to keep God out. The things in the world... They're not material things. They're attempts to find purpose and fulfillment apart from God. They're the things of the heart. They're desires, cravings, lusts. The world wants to use our God-given desires to draw us into ungodliness. Sexuality is just one example. But there's many, many more. Materialism. You want to draw us into ungodliness. 
how in the world do we get through this? We need the word of God to overcome the temptation of the devil. We need to immerse ourselves in it, applying it to every area of our lives. We have to remember the world and its desires will pass away and so will the object of those desires. It's going to be gone. The last thing we should do is invest all of our resources in those things. What we need to do, we need to seek God first and allow him to provide everything for our enjoyment. And by his grace, he'll do that. I'm not there yet. I'm working on that. But I've seen it in my own life when I pursue God first and let go of the worldly things he blesses me with enjoyment of things, even material things in this world. Praise God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're so lost without you. Our sinful flesh has a propensity to love worldly things that you hate, God. And we coddle them. We tend to crave them as though they're all that we have. But we have so much more in you. God, help us not to set our eyes and our hopes on the things of this world, but on you. You're the giver of every good gift, God. Help us to seek you first. You richly provide everything for our enjoyment. I just thank you that you have redeemed us from a worthless way of life. You've put your spirit in us. You've enlightened us to the truth of your word. God, now help us. Give us the strength and the power to live it out. We owe it all to you, Lord, and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.